But basically, where we've been going um, off and on for the, the several months is dealing with the whole subject of how do we become equipped to engage in this world. Uh, because as you know, as believers, what often happens is we tend to be very, uh, I was going to say isolated, not isolated. Clannish. Huh? Clannish. Clannish, yes ma'am. Very clannish. Uh, some of that is legitimate. You know, I um, uh, went to take some stuff for dry cleaning, and, and a young gal who waited on me uh, was smiling. And I said, wow, you got a wonderful smile. And because you know how it is in a dry cleaning place, people usually have one of these uh, <laughs> grim. And so I said to her, the joy of the Lord, and she said, is my strength. I thought, wow, that's cool. So I came back the next day and I shared another scripture and she completed it. Uh, so, you know, some of that is right and proper and so on to uh, encourage fellow believers. The issue is that sometimes we uh, become not just clannish but somewhat uh, ghettoized. You know, uh, we want to have a, uh, a believing. A uh, hairdresser, a cosmetologist, uh, a believing doctor, a believing nurse, and so on and so forth, which means, practically speaking, we, we on some level, we isolate ourselves and feel that only when we are around fellow believers are we safe. The basic problem with that is that our safety only comes from the Lord. And as you well know, being around believers is not necessarily indicative that we will be safe, right? Uh, so as we become more secure in the Lord, then the Lord launches us uh, to make an impact uh, with folks around us. And more to the point is that he gives us a basic sense of compassion to look at them and realize that they don't have the pearl of great price which has been given to us, and, and we have uh, peace, shalom, and, and wholeness, and, and we have a uh, relationship with God, which means we have basic security and stability as sons and daughters of God. And so that's been the, the basic thrust uh, over the last several months, the last year or two, uh, in one form or another, is, is how do we... Uh, come to terms with what it means to be um, the Lord's ambassadors in a uh, in a crook in a perverse world. And uh, this is still a long introduction before we get to Ezekiel 18. But part of what's been troubling for me is that um, I see in the uh, version of reality that I'm familiar with, and that is Facebook, um, that believers sometimes seem shocked by the fact that this is a perverted world. And remember what, what Paul said to the, uh, to the, help me out, Michael, Corinthian believers? Yes, Corinthian believers, chapter 6, he said, I told you not to associate with those who are immoral. And by 
that, I did not mean those in the world, because then you would have to leave the world. I told you not to associate with those who are immoral, who are fellow believers, and who choose to live that lifestyle. So part of the issue for us is then we receive a basic dose of compassion from Yeshua, uh, who looked out over the multitudes and was moved with compassion because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and confused, and that's the way people are around us. Um, and sometimes we're so self-consumed with who we are, what's going on with us, and and our needs that it's very hard for us to look beyond uh, outwardly. And so that's the challenge for us, and I feel like the Lord wants us to engage in it. Uh, and it's a process that to one degree or another we all get stretched. That certainly has been the case for me uh, because I grew up in Israel under an atmosphere of fear because the believing community was very beleaguered. We were tiny, we were very persecuted. And so the notion of feeling secure in my skin as a believer in interacting with Jewish people who are not followers of Yeshua has been very difficult because the fear in the back of my mind was they'll turn on you. And sometimes that has happened but part of the security in the Lord means that you take the baby steps and you trust God. And, and what's been astounding and, and, and amazing for me is to see how God has uh, led us as a congregational mishpacha, someone is wanting to come in or not, or not. You may bid her to come in. Elijah. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, folks, it's been amazing. The last four or five years, God has given us all kinds of favor with people in the, in the Jewish community. Um, and it's opened all kinds of doors, and he's continued to do that. And we're sometimes gingerly taking baby steps and saying, yeah, okay, God. You know, I think where you're opening doors will step. And uh, and the Lord has been working within us. And the truth is, I think if we're to go around and um, get perspectives or opinion, each of us has different buttons when it comes to interacting with folks who are not believers. And so God is working with us. And to one degree or another... It has to relate back to, to what the Word of God is saying. Um, so Ezekiel 18 is a very uh, foundational um, passage. And Lord willing, next week we are looking to Hosea chapter 14. Both of those speak about God's mercy and how God calls people to repent. So let's turn to Ezekiel 18, and uh, let's see if we have a willing victim. 
someone around you to describe God, uh, what would people typically say? How would you describe God's character, his action, and so on? Interesting. Loving non-judgmental. If you were to ask a fellow believer to describe the God of the Old Testament, what would they say? Judgmental. Judgmental. Angry. Angry. Uh, and like all good lies, there's an element of truth to it. There's definitely an element of truth to it. Uh, Hebrew has eight different words to describe God's anger. And one of the key words we talked about, I think last week or the week before, Charonaf, 
is like your nostrils flare. Um, and of course, we think of some uh, spectacular examples where God's anger is displayed. Uh, one, one example, of course, is um, uh, the story of Uzzah. You all remember Uzzah? You don't remember Uzzah? You look at me like, huh? Uzzah. Uh, remember? Did I say Uriah? No, she said was it Bathsheba's husband. No, it was not Bathsheba's husband. Okay, remember what happened, and we're not going to go through and look at all the scriptures, but remember what happened. Uh, Israel was sinful, as was often the case, and they had the notion of, well, uh, here there's a battle, and we're going to face the enemies, and we'll take the, the big box, the Ark of the Lord, and that will protect us. And guess what happened? The Lord let the Ark of the Lord be uh, taken over by the Philistines, uh, and they bring it to Dagon, the house of the fish god, and it's there. And then the next morning they get up and they see that there are parts of their God that's missing. And then another time they get up and they see that, that their statue is completely demolished. And so then they start to get, um, I guess it's okay to say hemorrhoids. Um, and uh, they say, okay, we need to get rid of that thing. And so they bring it and give it to an Israelite who lives close. And eventually, uh, David comes to the throne and he says, what are we doing with this ark? It needs to come and be put in proper place. And so Uzzah was one of the people that were um, uh, commissioned to bring the ark uh, to, to the proper place, to, its, to the place of worship. And you remember... Uh, how was the Ark of the Lord supposed to be carried around? There were two poles. There were poles, one on either side. And why were there poles? Correct. You're not supposed to touch it. And so uh, this was put on, on, a, on a cart, and it was wobbly. Uzzah reaches over and touches it, and it gets fried. And that's one of the spectacular examples uh, that we find in, in Scripture, in the Tanakh. By the way, everybody knows Tanakh. To you newbies, Tanakh. Uh, yes? No? Maybe? No. All right. Uh, this is an acronym, Torah, the Torah, Nevi'im, Prophets, um, the writings. So I will refer to that as the Tanakh. So that's the Hebrew name for the Old Testament scriptures. Thank you, Michael. So, um, and there are a number of other spectacular examples like that where Israel really screwed up, God was really angry, and a whole bunch of people died. Um, one example is Let's look at that just to illustrate the point. Um, numbers, 
chapter Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And then, do you want me to read two nine? Uh, or just nine? Just nine. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Okay, now, uh, I encourage you to read uh, this chapter if you haven't. Pretty grim. Um, uh, Israel is in a place called Peor which is in Moab, you know, uh, west of the Jordan River. And um, Balaam, remember the guy who, he gave counsel to the Moabites to send in their young gals to seduce the Israelites. And that's what they did. And the, the men of Israel got involved with that and they worshiped Baal. And the Lord was very angry and 24,000 people died. So... This is uh, a difficult reality. Um, it conveys God's anger, but a couple things. One is that God's anger always reflects <coughs> God's pain. And as you know, anger is a reflection of, of someone's hurt and pain. It's not a primary emotion. God reveals his pain, his anger, because the people of Israel basically cheat on him. They commit adultery. And by the way, that's, that's typically the word that's used in Scripture to describe idolatry is prostitution. Very, very strong. Uh, and by the way, that's um, people really have a hard time with, with the Tanakh because it gets very graphic, it gets very intense. And so we want to put it in, in a, uh, put it through a transducer so that it's a little easier to, for it to go down. In any event, um, the second thing I wanted to point out about that episode is that this is unique. Even though it's very spectacular, uh, what people totally ignore is the fact that underneath all that, God demonstrates incredible mercy over and over and over again. I want to look at a couple of examples of that. Uh, Second Chronicles 24 and we'll eventually get to Ezekiel 18 Michael. Chesed. Second Chronicles um, 24, 18 and 19. with the electronic gizmos. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherah and the idols. So that wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord, though they testified against them they would not listen. Okay. And then um, 
keep your electronic finger there and turn to Second uh, Chronicles 36. And uh, verses 15 and 16. And someone else with electronic gizmos. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. So, the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. So, uh, what is the picture that you see there, Kaylee? Well, they took advantage of his mercy. How? So, we have to, uh, they continually mocked the messengers of God. Okay. Because they just wanted to. Very 21st century, isn't it? Um, and, and yet, uh, the language is very clear. The Lord sends them messengers, the prophets, who came to them day after day after day, morning to evening. Uh, they mocked. And why did the Lord keep on sending messengers to them? Because he had compassion. He had compassion. He had compassion. Now, let's do a little bit of a timeline. The first one in Second Chronicles 24 was the king Yoash, uh, which is about uh, 835 BCE. And this last one was Zedekiah, which was about 586 BCE. So uh, you're looking at about 250 years during which the people of Israel thumbed their nose at the Lord. And what does he do? He just keeps on sending people. He just keeps on sending people. Why? Because he has compassion. That's 250 years, folks. So do people notice that? No. Uh, because what did they do? Folks typically look at Uzzah and what happened at Baal Peor with 24,000. They're totally oblivious to the fact that for 250 years, God continues to demonstrate incredible mercy for the people of Israel. In fact, if you were to go further up to David's time, you're looking at closer to 400 years, because right after David died, King Solomon, uh, in his old age, started to follow the gods and goddesses of the nations around. So... How does that define God? Well, it defines God as mercy being option A for him. Uh, and remember what James tells us in chapter 2, verse 13. James 2, 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes. No. Or justice, I should say. Yes. So what that means is that if God has to make a choice between mercy and justice, he will bend over backwards and do everything possible to show mercy rather than, than uh, mete out judgment. 
which is totally the uh, opposite perspective of what we have of who God is. So because of that, when you look at the world, you look at the world around and all the garbage that's going on, sometimes you have the attitude of, Lord, look at these sinners, nuke them, you know, clean this earth of, of this pollution. And as we saw with, with Jonah, God has a somewhat different perspective. He said, yes, they are horrible, miserable sinners, but here's the mirror. What do you see in the mirror? And so um, we need to begin from the perspective that says who the Lord is, is first and foremost that he is a God of compassion. And if we are to be like him, to be conformed to, to, the, to his image, and that's what needs to take place with us. We need to, to learn to be compassionate people living in a very polluted and defiled world. And no, we don't we don't glom onto the pollution and garbage, but we recognize the fact that the Lord uh, cares deeply and is compassionate about these sheep who are who are scattering like sheep without a shepherd. And so uh, Ezekiel 18 um, sets out to set out some, some clear pictures. And by the way, as you look at scripture, sometimes what you'll see is what I call the literary sandwich. Uh, not mayo or, or anything else, but uh, what that means is that we have a statement or a number of statements then we have a bunch of stuff, and then we have a similar statement down here. What that is designed to do is to say, okay, all this stuff here uh, is designed to highlight what's, what's being said here and here. And we see that from uh, on a number of different occasions. The scholars call that inclusion, big, you know, uh, but that's really what it means. Um, so you begin, first of all, um, by God laying out his, his priorities. And at the beginning of this chapter, uh, but we'll do things somewhat differently. And we will start down here. Um, verse 23. And the way God communicates that is very strong. It's designed to, con to, to get across the message that says, I'm really serious. I want, to, I want you to understand that I'm really serious. In verse 23, um, perhaps a better way to describe it is to say, do you really think that I get any pleasure whatsoever out of seeing the wicked die. In other words, are you so foolish as to think that that gives me any pleasure? Uh, Hebrew word for pleasure is chafetz. And it, 
you know, we think of the love of God as in these mystical, supernatural, spiritual terms. But remember, folks, that Scripture gives us uh, the reality about God and language that we can relate to. And Chafetz basically is about uh, the, the uh, attraction that there is between men and women, uh, desire and, and uh, just wanting to be close to. Um, and so what God is saying, it, it, and he uses a couple of these words together uh, and to convey the basic notion of, I really get no pleasure out of seeing the wicked die. In fact, what, what you do when you look at scripture with this word, you will never see it connected to something negative. In other words, God's desire and God's pleasure is not with negative stuff. God's desire and God's pleasure, for example, is to see righteous people. You know, the, in the Psalms it speaks about the Lord delights in his righteous. Or the Lord, uh, Hosea 6.6, 6, um, God does not delight in sacrifices, but in mercy. In other words, he's not interested in mechanical obedience, but he is interested in, in the heart of compassion that is given to people. So, what the Lord is saying here is, um, in a sense, that does me no good, and it certainly does you no good. Uh, why do you think the Lord needs to make that such a strong statement? answers in the next uh, sentence. Okay. Wouldn't I prefer that he turn from his ways and live? Okay. Live in what sense? Live like everyday life? Live in obedience. Okay. So we think of repentance and spiritual and theological terms and remember that Hebrew is very graphic, is very vivid. So the, the word for repent, shuv, literally means you're going one way and then you turn 180 degrees and you go you, you go in a, in a way that is polar opposite. And so the Lord is calling on the people of Israel to repent why? So that they can live. And remember that the word for life here is more than just getting up in the morning and eating and so on and so forth. Uh, remember that in the Torah, um, in Deuteronomy, the Lord says to Israel, I said before you, life and death. Um, choose life. In other words, don't be stupid. I have good things for you. And if you choose to obey me, then you'll get them. And so this is part of the message. The Lord is saying to Israel, you're heading off a cliff. Why be stupid? Turn and receive the life that I have for you. And this is, uh, as, as you read these verses, um, you get, to, if you're a parent, you can understand what it feels like. 
sometimes. You see your kid, you guys don't need to listen. Uh, you see your kid doing stupid things, you say, why are you doing this to yourself? And, and you kind of call out and say, stop. And that's basically what we see here is the heart of the Father God, the Venus Russian uh, calling out to his people and saying, you're heading down a cliff, turn around, come. Um, and so part of the picture here is the people in Jerusalem's time, in, in, in Ezekiel's time, really didn't get it. And so all they could see was we're in a mess of trouble. Why are we in a mess of trouble? Because it was our parents' fault. You know? Very tw 21st century. Or our grandparents' fault. Um, and like anything else, there is some truth to that. And I'm going to very lightly talk about something and not dive into it. You've heard of the so-called generational curse. Um which people sort of have as a, uh, uh, a fatalistic determinism kind of a thing that your parent did something and you are bound to go the same route and you're bound to suffer the same nonsense they did. And that is based on a misunderstanding of the Ten Commandments. Say how? Well, let me show you. Uh, Exodus 20. Does that not show you a determinism? In other words, your great-grandparents, your grandparents, your parents did such and such, and God is going to punish you for what they did. But he talks about passing, well... Hang on. Let's, let, let's first of all talk about the third and the fourth. Why third and fourth? Think about uh, ancient 
Near East, Israel, kind of kind of a, a family situation. Did they have uh, a single mom or single dad? So what did they have? Multiple wives. They had households. You know, semi-clan, an extended family, all living together, kids and parents and grand and, and grandparents and maybe even grandparents. So what the Lord is talking about there is households. The sin uh, that took place will be passed on or, or God's judgment. And some of that, as we see and remember, is, is uh, uh, real because uh, there is such a thing as corporate guilt. You know, we see that with, with Israel. We frankly see that with the church. Um, and if you are part of an organization where there's stuff, there is some corporate guilt. However, um, the Lord is very clear to, to remind us that he is about mercy, not about judgment. Because this is third or fourth generation to those who hate him, but thousand. Literally, it just says thousand, but that's clearly thousand generation. If you do the math and uh, you talk about uh, 40 years per generation, you're talking about God's mercy being going on for 40,000 years, etc. You, you get the point. Uh, so we glom onto the third, fourth generation, forgetting the fact that God's mercy is thousand generation to those who love him. Are you saying, is, is the expression third and fourth generation an idiom? Yes. And it actually means a household? Correct. So there's no term household? Um, no, I didn't say that. No, I'm asking. I didn't say you said that. Uh, I'm asking. The, the household typically is bait, house. Go bait. Okay. Or mishpacha. Or mishpacha. Uh, Bet Yaakov, the house of Jacob, but um, in this case, the third or fourth generation is clearly referring to a household. Uh, and yes, the uh, reality is, folks, what has taken place in previous generation makes an impact. There's no way to dance around it. Yes, ma'am. Um, so this is just, I don't know, I guess. So he says, I mean, he's is God of the heavens, of the earth, of this and that. And then there's the comparison of idolatry, him. And so when you use numbers, you have more of a sense of totality. Right. Of, so I wonder if it's, the connection is, I mean, he is God of all. And when you put it in generations, you can see the totality. You know, Mishpacha, it's a family, so it's, it's one now. But when you start saying... Here are all the generations you think of. Okay, you have the great grandparents, you have the grandparents, you have the fathers, you have right. the kids, you have the, you know, and maybe all the goats are there doing the thing. So right. you know, it's just, it's a much more picture. You can, you get a, I think you get a better picture. And then when you think, say thousands, that's massive. Yeah, it's not only massive uh, for a person who is hearing Ezekiel, thousand generation is basically like saying infinity. Um, and
And so the, the point there is not to park on the third and fourth generation, but remember it's third and fourth generation to those who hate him. You know, so if, if there is a, 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 a continuation of the hatred towards God in the third and fourth generation, you bet he's going to judge. Uh, but the contrast really is between the third and fourth generation and the thousandth generation. In other words, again, uh, option A for God is always to show mercy. Much more preferred. Um, so this is what people were saying, and again, they were glomming on to the third and fourth generation, and basically then coming and saying, uh, we're not guilty. Uh, this has happened because uh, Yoash over here uh, did all this awful sin, and it's come down to us, it's accumulated, etc., etc. And so, don't hold us accountable. And God says, yes, I am going to hold you accountable which is where now we come back to the beginning of this chapter. Um, in verse 1, and 2, and 3, and 4. Um, well, I think actions have consequences. And, you know, if I jump out of an airplane, my kids are going to grow up without a father, and there's no uh, pretending otherwise that they're going to be affected their kids would grow up without a grandfather, and that's just, you know, it's going to take time. But, but if they act right, uh, God will reward them. They will live. Yes, and here's something to remember, folks. Uh, the folks who park on generational curse, and there's some truth to that, the folks who park on generational curse are not willing to give proper credence the fact that Yeshua's atonement provides cleansing, provides healing, provides restoration, regardless of what the Father did or didn't do. And there are all kinds of examples, folks. And, you know, for me as a son of a Holocaust survivor, I go to naturally examples of perpetrators with whom, I, and I've had contact with uh, second and third generation. In other words, uh, uh, daughters, sons and daughters and grandchildren of Nazi perpetrators who have renounced the sins of their fathers, have received compassion and love for, for people, particularly Jewish people, and are totally are polar opposite to what their, their uh, parents and grandparents were, and consequently, they did what the Word of God says, repent turn to me and live and receive the life from the Lord. So part of the picture is, you know how it is when people are not willing to take responsibility and say, yeah, I, I'm, I take ownership from my stuff, from my sin, uh, or they're not willing to trust God who is capable uh, of providing restoration and, um, and healing they say, God, if this is not me, it's etc. And that's a difficult, difficult reality uh, for all of us, to one degree or another. 
But uh, Ezekiel is saying, is quoting a proverb that people were saying those days. You know, my father uh, bit into into a sour apple, and my teeth are are hurting because of it. You know, that that was a way of of saying. I'm receiving what it, the garbage that my father or mother did. And what Ezekiel is saying, no, that's not going to be a reality. In other words, I've tolerated and put up with that up until now. Time to stop. And then he goes on to say that every person is held responsible for their own sin. In other words, regardless of what the previous generation did or didn't do, um, and regardless of the consequences, of the actions of the previous generation. God holds each and every person responsible, A, for our choices, and B, for a basic willingness to trust in God. That regardless of what had or hadn't taken place, um, he, has, he has answers. And so you have kind of a scenario here. Remember, this is the so-called literary sandwich here. Uh, he talks about, uh, I refuse to accept this proverb, and, and uh, I hold each person accountable. That's the sandwich. But then he gives us this scenario of, of an individual who, who follows the Torah and does a number of different things, which some of which are very obviously moral, some of it some of which are more what we would consider um, not quite as high up on the list of what is and what is moral. The point is, and, and people who come from the church side, and I'll, I'll use that expression, uh, look at Yeshua as the one and only example of God's mercy. And obviously, ultimately, it is, because it's, it's God-giving best and only thing he could really give. However, uh, as you study the Tanakh, you see that Israel is a poster child for God's mercy. And frankly, if we really understand uh, church history, we'll realize that the church is the same thing. Uh, poster child of God's mercy because if he operated purely on justice, the institution or the organization that, that we call the church, the body of Messiah, would have been nuked. So would Israel. Um, so the scenario is that the father does all these wonderful things and um, or he goes through a scenario in which in which one generation is right on the money, they does everything, they do everything they're supposed to, and then the next generation turns on a dime. And that, frankly, is mind-boggling because, especially for us who have kids who have done that, who have turned away, it, it, it's hard to get our arms around. But part of the picture is that this is what the Word of God is saying here, is that each individual has the choices that they make for which they're held accountable before God. And so the next generation turns and goes the absolute the other way. And then the third generation you have a, a resurgence of coming back to, to God and a restoration. Um, and in each case, the Lord is saying, no, what's going to happen 
uh, in each generation is not going to be based on what the previous generation did, but it's going to be based on what that particular generation did. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is appropriate here or not, but back to the context, to the context or the concept, sorry, of third and fourth generation being uh, a household. What does the law mean by saying, no longer will I punish one generation, punish the children for the previous generation, whatever, but now each one of you will be held responsible for your own sin? I don't see that the Lord is putting a stamp of approval on that proverb at all. In other words, I don't see that the, what the Lord is saying through Ezekiel, that's the way things were, it's no longer going to be the case. No, I'm taking um, um, Exodus. Oh, Exodus. To uh, the third and fourth generation, you said that applies to a household and, and, and in terms of where they lived. But there is another passage, I just offhand can't remember where, um, where he says, no longer will I be, um, you know, where subsequent, basically, subsequent generations are going to be punished for the sins of their father. Each one of you will be held guilty for your own sin. I think it's in Ezekiel, actually, somewhere. We are in this, in this particular chapter. Jeremiah also mentions the same proverb. The point, the point, folks, is that I don't see that God is saying uh, that proverb was true up until now. It's no longer going to be true. He is basically saying... I refuse to accept that, regardless of what you what you said or you didn't say, um, because if you go back before Jeremiah and Ezekiel's time, the Lord still held people accountable. And yet, remember with Yeshua, um, the man born blind, they still had that concept of, oh, well, who sinned? Was right. it him or his parents? Right. So that concept was still there. It, it was still there. It, it is still there. Uh, to, to be uh, perfectly uh, grim about it, uh, I've, I've heard... It'll still be there tomorrow, probably. Yeah, I've heard believers saying that, uh, that the Holocaust happened because of the massive rejection of Yeshua by the, by the Jewish people. And you know, obviously, for a variety of reasons, is is uh, way uh, incorrect and, and inappropriate, but if for no other reason than this particular verse, where part of the new covenant is that God, and frankly the Tanakh, the Mosaic covenant, God judges people based on their actions. And yes, there is such a thing as corporate guilt. Uh, however, even under the umbrella of corporate guilt, God still deals with individuals and holds them accountable and, and remember, all right, here, here's a, a classic example. Uh, God waited for 400 years for the Canaanites to stop their junk and their idolatry. And after 400 years when Israel was in, in Egypt, uh, remember in, in the uh, covenant with Abraham, the Lord said that, that the, he predicted that the people of Israel will be in Egypt for 400 years until the cup of iniquity of the Amorites filled up? Yes. Okay, uh, Exodus? Genesis 15, I believe. You, you believe correctly. Genesis 15. Um, 
And so you, you have the impression that God has been merciful, and at some point he says, enough is enough, judgment has to come uh, on the Canaanites. And even then, you have a Canaanite prostitute who gets the fact that the God of Israel is the, the one and only God, and she has, uh, she makes the right choice, and she receives not only forgiveness, but she is incorporated into the line of David and to the line of Messiah. And her entire household was saved. Her entire household was saved. Her entire household. She just said, you are God. I don't believe you. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yes, you do have such a thing as corporate guilt. And, by the way, nations that have come against Israel have experienced God's judgment. Uh, Nazi Germany is case in point. If you know anything about what Germany was like after World War II, it was demolished. All the major cities uh, were in ashes. Um, I have no doubt that, that it wasn't just because of what happens in war. I, I really truly believe that that was God's judgment on what was committed by by the Nazis and and the entire nation participated to one degree or another. Um, and even so, God operates in mercy with particular individuals. And so part of the challenge for us um, is to remember that the Lord prefers mercy and compassion and if we don't get that we have to see how God deals with us and let me tell you something folks the people that I find who are most graceless are the people who don't understand the um, the depth of the grace and mercy of God because if you understand the grace and mercy of God for you you will, you will, it will come naturally for you to have grace and mercy and compassion for others. So this is something we want to keep in mind. You know, as as we are positioning ourselves to think outwardly and say, Lord, um, I want to be used as your vessels, your your mouthpieces, to convey the good news to people who who need to come into the kingdom because you're compassionate to them as you've been compassionate to me. All right, so let's pause here. And Michael, would you finish for us, please? Father, we thank you for this time that we could come and look into your word. We pray that we, too, would have your compassion for people. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to uh, have the same um, idea to live a righteous life, Lord, and to not look um, back on our lives and say it was because of what our father or our mother did, but we pray, Lord, that we would learn to see ourselves and to take ownership for what we do. We pray you forgive us our sins and that you would be with us through the rest of this week and bring us all back safely on Shabbat. We pray that you would continue to show us favor by bringing us rain. But, Lord, we, we do pray that you would give us a window that we'd be able to come on Shabbat and that everybody would be safe, and we just give you all glory in Yeshua's name.